Welcome to Obesity, a Disease, the official Obesity Medicine Association podcast exploring the many facets of the disease of obesity. Obesity, a Disease podcast is brought to you by the Obesity Medicine Association, a clinical leader in obesity medicine. Welcome. My name is Dr. Harold Bays, Medical Director and President of the Louisville Metabolic and Atherosclerosis Research Center located in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome to this program entitled Obesity, a Disease. Uh, I am Chief Science Officer of the Obesity Medicine Association, and periodically I will moderate podcasts uh, for the Obesity Medicine Association. What I try to focus upon are, are articles that have recently, recently been published. And uh, today's podcast is going to be focused on this clinical practice statement published by um, the Obesity Medicine Association. It's entitled Obesity, Diabetes Mellitus, and Cardiometabolic Risk. Uh, I think that's, that's just so key for many folks that are in obesity medicine. And we're just so fortunate um, to have with us one of the co-authors of this clinical practice statement, uh, Dr. Shagun. Benlish. Um, Dr. Benlish, can you please uh, tell the folks who you are and a little bit about what you do? Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Bayes, for having me here. Uh, I'm so excited to be part of this conversation today. Uh, I'm Dr. Shagun Benlish, and I'm very excited. I am an internist and diabetologist practicing in Bay Area. I'm also a diplomat of uh, ABOM, uh, that is American Board of Obesity Medicine and uh, Lifestyle Medicine. I have been serving in Obesity Medicine Association Committee for more than two years. And I'm a chair of Thought Leadership Committee and a board member of American Diabetes Association. I'm also a speaker at University at Sea and adjunct faculty at Torrey University, California. So this is actually my passion of bringing diabetes and obesity together. That's what we have done in this paper as well. So to bring awareness, I also started my channel, Diabetes, that is diabetes. Conquering diabetes and obesity. So I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Uh, well, that's just perfect uh, for this <clears throat> this podcast here. So, so again, very active in the Obesity Medicine Association, but also active in, in the American Diabetes Association. Correct? Yes. All right. So, so here's here's a a concept um, that I think we have evolved in the Obesity Medicine Association that uh, when you start talking about things like nutrition or physical activity, uh, wh what we're finding, you know, in the past, people used to say, well, uh, if you have the obesity, maybe there's this one kind of nutritional intervention. And if you have the diabetes, there's this other thing. And then if you're trying to prevent cancer, it's a, it's a different thing. Or if you have blood pressure, it's a different thing. Uh, I got to say, uh, within this article, and I think this is right, uh, what we're finding is is it's almost like all these things that I mentioned, the most common causes of death in developed nations, uh, all of them have the same essential principles when you start talking about nutritional uh, intervention. Things like it's gotta be evidence-based. Mm -hmm. It's gotta be healthful from a qualitative standpoint. It's gotta be healthful from a quantitative standpoint. You gotta have patient adherence, patient agreement. You got to avoid ultra processed foods, should limit the sodium and the alcohol and the saturated fats, limit simple car carbohydrates, 
avoid high energy dense foods and then prioritize healthful whole foods high in fiber and micronutrients and you know dr Bendler, this this is these are principles that i think uh expand uh, beyond the overweight the obesity the cancer prevention the high blood pressure the lipids and such but i think they also extend to the diabetes mellitus well i mean what, what, what's your sense about that I absolutely agree, uh, Dr. Bates. When we talk about the nutrition and basic, actually helpful nutrition, actually the information in the, uh, around this area has been so overwhelming for the patients to actually understand what they should follow and where to start with. So we do have some recommendations like avoid high dense energy foods, uh, like low sodium food for high, high blood pressure, limit simple carbohydrates, but the understanding and how much to limit and what to limit is really uh, limited. So when we come to diabetes um, uh, management, first thing what I have always seen is that if we start talking about diet, it's always patient think about the sugar, but they do not understand how and how much is the sugar and where it is and where to control. So, uh, and diabetes itself is a very overwhelming di diagnosis for them. To, start with a new medication, plus starting with a completely new lifestyle, starting with a new type of physical activity. It's all like going too much out of the comfort zone. So that makes them very overwhelming. So uh, that is what first thing I think the before even the nutrition starts, first thing is we have to understand if the patient is accepting the, about the, accepting the diagnosis. Second, how ready they are to make the changes. Then these processes come. So with the nutrition, uh, I think, Absolutely, there is. There has to be very clear nutrition prescription, which is what I suggest my patients, that you have to take what you can take and what you cannot take and how much you can take and how much you cannot take. So that is what uh, I always recommend, that it has to be patient-centered and culturally sensitive so that patient agreement and adherence is very, very, very important. So this is a very missing part because a lot of the providers, they are not able to spend enough time with the patients and that uh, giving that understanding has been very difficult. So I think I would really focus on adherence and compliance and understanding first. And then there are multiple diets that we can use. Uh, we can address again, the cultural acceptance is very important and how we can modify it. Modify it. So uh, uh, I think this is what I think like where I go with the diabetes challenge. Yes, it's, yeah, I hear that also where clinicians uh, often say, well, they don't really have time to look over uh, or to give uh, nutritional counseling and everything. But I mean, I think that's part of what being a clinician is all about, particularly if you're a clinician and treating patients with overweight and obesity. I mean, nutritional intervention is really important. So what I tell clinicians is do what I do uh, is have patients keep a dietary diary. That way, it's like what I really like about that approach is it's it's non-judgmental. Um, patients write down every single thing they eat and drink except for water, and they bring it to me, and then I, and we can sit down and and sort of map out a plan. To, you know, show specifically for that patient in a patient-centered approach. Uh, things maybe they could be doing better. Uh, things maybe they they can eliminate from the diet, like remove from the diet. Uh, so I'm from 
Kentucky and such, I hear people say, oh, I'm the, from the South. You know, I'm, you don't know what it's like that I, you're telling me I can't eat bacon or, you know, whatever. I'm like, I'm from the South too. I, I know what it's like to not eat bacon. And I think that's an okay thing for you to consider, right? I think, I, I think there's ways that you can communicate with people when you're having them keep accountability as opposed to engaging in blame. Uh, and so that's, I've just found a dietary diary to be a very unbiased way of tracking what patients are doing and can give you much granularity and, and specificity um, to what you can re recommend to patient. I would say the same thing about physical activity. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things that the um, Obesity Medicine Association is a little bit of an outlier uh, to other organizations in that uh, it says, and again, this is, we're an organization that uh, works with patients with overweight and obesity that says, look, um, you know, most, organ most societies that recommend physical activity say 150 to 300 minutes or more of moderate intensity aerobic activity. Uh, you know, and then there are also recommendations for higher activity and then resistance training at least two times a week. And I think those are good, mm -hmm. but I think the evidence is also there to suggest that steps really do matter. And so for the Obesity Medicine Association, a good starting point is to ensure 5,000 steps per day. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if you can do over 10,000 steps per day, that's even better. And that's explicitly stated in this clinical practice statement. But for many of our pa patients, if we could just get them to 5,000 steps per day, that's a remarkable achievement and it shouldn't be dismissed. And the thing that I really object to is the um, people that say, well, okay, maybe 5,000 steps per day is pretty good, but it's got to be within a st structured program that if they're walking at work or walking at leisure, that shouldn't count. Why are, are we the step police? Like, why are we doing this? If this is what can be achieved and it's a marker for which the patient can feel better about themselves. And oh, by the way, it's consistent with the medical science that those things are beneficial. I mean, why, why wouldn't we embrace that? So I will ask you, um, you have a patient basically inactive. Um, if your patient with the overweight and the obesity, maybe who has the diabetes mellitus and such, who is inactive, can achieve at least 5,000 steps per day. I mean, what, what is your reaction to the patient? How, how are you going to characterize that achievement to your patient? I will give him a big smiley and a hundred percent. Exactly. Yeah. So, so how do you, I mean, talk to us about, do you, do you engage much in, in discussions with your patients about steps per day and those types of things? What, what, do, what do you recommend to patients? So uh, I agree uh, with current guidelines with we have like 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity of 75 to 150 minutes of more vigorous activity. Uh, this is These are the guidelines and they're really great to have an outline. But the thing is that again, when we are starting with somebody who is sedentary, if we tell them to go and do 150 to 300 minutes exercise a week, it is not going to work. Exactly. So, for me, I explained them about the NEAT, that is a non-exercise activity thermogenesis and the uh, difference between the EAT, that is exercise activity thermogenesis. And even explaining about the NEAT that these steps count, even like standing on a standing desk or going out to your kitchen just to bring the water or uh, having uh, maybe just moving around in the house, going up and down the stairs, just these are going to count, everything count. 
So uh, they really get very excited and understand that, oh, okay, so I didn't know that these steps are really matter. They re I, for me, it's only going out and when I'm doing it, exercise in gym is matter. But no, we have to count every single activity that they, that they do in their house or whether outside the house. So I think it is very important to even encourage to say that even 5,000 or even like starting with the 2,000 for a sedentary person is mm -hmm. a lot. Like that is very motivating and encouraging. So again, and, and a lot of people do not understand about the resistance training and their importance. So some of the exercises that they can do even while sitting and or even I tell them to just go for a walk. You can, they can uh, take a weight of two or three pounds and just go for a walk. That also is very helpful for them to uh, um, incorporate physical activity in their day. And I think that that really matters. So I really like that statement here that even 5,000 minimum is very encouraging. I agree totally. Right. And and to, you know, this, this, this article, this clinical practice statement also gives basic principles to what you just talked about, which is resistance training. And in here, the, the prioritization in this figure is the number one, keep it simple and safe. safe. It's gotta be safe. Mm -hmm. And you, you gotta learn resistance training techniques and use proper metrics to assess progress. You know, sometimes body weight is not your best metric when you're engaged in, in resistance training. Uh, many times percent body uh, fat is a better metric or sometimes measuring waist circumference is a better metric because uh, if you are losing fat and gaining muscle, uh, then maybe that's not so much reflected in, in your body weight. So, you, so when you're engaged in resistance training, uh, there are just some basic principles that patients need to know. They need to know that maybe targeting the large muscle groups is better mm -hmm. rather than mm -hmm. saying, I'm going to do curls, you know, to, to build up my biceps and such. You know, you know, many people recommend targeting those core muscles. Not only are you going to Maybe those are some of the larger muscle groups, but also that helps with posture and and you know other potential and balance and other potential benefits beyond just increasing muscle mass and and you know as you're doing this you've got to you've got to integrate your res resistance training with your diet you've got to make sure you're having adequate protein and protein. hydration uh, you got to engage in healthful sleep. Um, and whatever you do has to be complementary to dynamic training. It can't be a substitute for the dynamic training or the aerobic training like you talked about. And finally, um, there does have to be some overload of muscle if you're going to gain muscle mass. Uh, a lot of times I see people with these hand weights that are maybe two or five pounds or whatever. That's not going to do much for your increasing muscle mass, and it's not going to do much for osteoporosis either so mm -hmm. um there there does need to be some attention to safely for most patients mm -hmm. uh, simply and safely uh, increase muscle mass and yes a lot of times that does involve some overload of muscle but i but i want to emphasize this because i can't do it enough uh that whatever resistance training people undergo it's got to be with proper technique and then if you're going to assess the effectiveness, um, it can't just be weight. So, all right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been uh, truly great. And I think it's been a really practical discussion about the, uh, the application of nutritional intervention, physical activity, anti-obesity medications, bariatric surgery, 
uh, in our patients with the uh, overweight, uh, obesity, and the diabetes mellitus, all consistent within this within the context of this clinical practice statement and such put out by the Obesity Medicine Association. So I want to um, I want to thank you for Dr. Vinelish for um, uh, for um, for Dr. Vinelish for uh, participating for co-authoring this paper, and I also want to thank you, the listeners, uh, for participating and and uh, listening to this podcast entitled "Obesity: A Disease," uh, which is the podcast put out by the Obesity Medicine Association. Thank you for listening to this episode of Obesity: A Disease. For more information about Obesity Medicine podcasts and other valuable resources from the clinical leaders in obesity medicine, please visit www.obesitymedicine.org backslash podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode and want to listen regularly, head over to iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a much appreciated review. The views expressed in this episode are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily represent the opinions, beliefs, or policies of the Obesity Medicine Association or its members. Please join us again for our next episode of Obesity, a Disease.